Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make sure you're aware of a few things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks at Hope Church LV, and also be sure to check out our website at hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're going as a church. Once again, thank you so much for checking out this sermon at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. How many of you this morning would be honest? Honesty is a good thing in church, amen? How many of you would be honest and say you spent some time either this past week or over the last month searching for the perfect gift? Let me see your hands. Many honest. Some of you are not being honest this morning. You've been looking. You've been shopping. We've been looking. Maybe it's for your spouse. Maybe it's for your parents. Maybe it's for your children. But we've been looking for the right or the perfect gift. It happens all over our culture, all over our country during this season. We become obsessed with finding the perfect gift. Gift. Let me give you some statistics to just kind of show you how obsessed we are with finding the perfect gift. Here's the first one. From last year, 2018, holiday retail sales. Now, holiday retail sales is the 30 days between Thanksgiving and Christmas. For the first time in American history, holiday sales crossed the $1 trillion mark. A trillion dollars. Now, we hear million, billion, trillion so much that we don't really have a filter for that. But if you were going to count one trillion dollars by seconds, it would take you over 31,000 years to count to one trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of gifts. Here's another one. Americans spend more than seven billion dollars annually on gifts. <laughs> Now, wait a minute. That's not the present. That's just what we wrap it in to give it to somebody else. We're spending $7 billion on wrapping paper. What do we do with that wrapping paper? Well, look at the next one. While the United States celebrates the holidays, Americans produce an additional, this season, 5 million tons of waste. 4 million of the additional tons are wrapping paper and shopping bags. If those don't prove our sickness, the last one really does. 51% of Christmas shoppers <laughs> buy gifts for themselves too. Help us, Lord, right? I got to be honest, I did that last week. I did. I did. I'm sorry. I didn't wrap it, but I just saw it. I liked it, bought it, took it home, right? I did it too. Because I don't ever go to stores, but this time of year I'm in stores. We're shopping for gifts. Now, now, sometimes people can hear these statistics that we've walked through this morning. And what happens is in our culture, some Christians run to the other extreme, right? We, if we're not careful, we can become very pious and radical and make statements like, Christmas is not about presents. As a matter of fact, at Thanksgiving, an article came out on a website called moms.com. Here's what it said. Ten ways to celebrate Christmas that don't involve presents. 
If you follow that article, don't invite me to your house to celebrate Christmas. Amen? <laughs> now, don't misunderstand me. I understand that we can, we can get out of balance. But before we run too fast down that path that Christmas is not about gifts and presents, I want to remind you of something. Christmas, the entire reason we celebrate is to celebrate the greatest gift ever given. 2,000 years ago, God gave the world the perfect gift. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. The reason we celebrate Christmas is because of the greatest gift ever given. And I hope that we remind and communicate that to one another as we exchange gifts. What we're really doing it's an expression, if we, t- if we keep it in balance, it's an expression of the radical generosity of our God that gave us the greatest gift ever given, and that is God's perfect gift. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, and I want to do it out of a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the first century called the letter to the Galatian church. It's in the book of Galatians in your Bible, chapter 4. There may not be another place in the Bible that more succinctly states the Christmas story. Now, if I were to say to you this morning, where in the Bible do you go to read the Christmas story? Some would say Matthew, some would say Luke, some would say, but I don't know that anybody would name the book of Galatians, but I'm telling you, this is maybe the greatest two-sentence statement about the Christmas story found anywhere in the scripture. So Galatians chapter four, put it up here on the screen for you, beginning in verse number four. Here's what it says. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. What a great section of Scripture describing the miraculous event that we celebrate at Christmas. And out of these verses, I want to give you three reasons why Jesus is God's perfect gift. And here's the first one. He came at the perfect time. Did you hear what the scripture said? Paul opens these verses by saying, when the fullness of the time came. That word fullness is a word that means to be completed or to be filled up or to be full. It's a phrase that's used in scripture to describe a woman when she is at that point where it is time for the baby to come. In Luke chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible uses a word that comes from the same root word as this word fulfilled, and it says the days were completed for her, talking about Mary, to give birth, meaning she'd reached the fullness of her pregnancy. Now, that's something that women who have had babies, they they just know that time, right? Guys, we don't ever seem to catch on, but my wife and I have four children, so she's given birth four times, and and she can just tell when it's time for another lady. We'll be walking down the mall. There'll be a pregnant lady. My wife will go, oh, she's about to have that baby. (laughs) 
And I'm like, how do you know that? Like, they look the same from about three months to about nine months to me. I can't tell a difference. But to her, a woman, and you ladies know what I'm talking about. You can see another woman that's expecting, and you can go, oh, she's about to have that baby. What does that mean? The fullness of time has come. Here's what Paul is saying. From the beginning of time, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the beginning of time, the world, the universe that God created was pregnant. It was pregnant with God's plan of redemption, that one day there would be born into the world a Messiah, a Savior, who would redeem us from our sins. And Paul is saying that when Jesus was born, It was the fullness of time. One writer, Donald Guthrie, said it this way. God had prepared the whole world for the coming of His Son at this particular time in history. You say, how did God prepare the world? Well, several ways. I'm just going to mention a couple of them. But first of all, God had prepared the world spiritually. You see, since Genesis 1-1, God had been progressively revealing himself. God had been making himself known. Never did God reveal his entire person, but from Genesis 1-1, God was giving glimpses into his character and into his person. We saw glimpses of who God is in creation, his sovereignty and his power, glimpses in the relationship between Abraham and Isaac, glimpses in Noah and the ark, glimpses in David and Goliath, glimpses of God, revealing aspects of his character like a puzzle. We were getting one piece at a time, but never had God fully revealed himself to the world. Another thing God had done to prepare the world spiritually is God had given us his law. The law of God that God gave us, all the thou shalt and the thou shalt not. Sometimes people look at the law of God and they think that God gave us the law So that if we could keep the law, then we could earn a right relationship with God. But that is not why God gave us the law. God gave us the law to reveal the holiness and the righteousness of his character and to show us our inability to ever earn a right standing with God. You see, when I look in the law, you know what I realize? I realize when I look at the law, if I have to earn my way into heaven, I don't have a shot, right? Because when I look at the law, I see myself as a transgressor, somebody who's already stepped across God's boundary. God gave us the law to reveal another aspect of his character, but also to point us to our need for a Savior and a Messiah. God also had given us promises. Throughout the Old Testament history, God gave promises. I want to read you one of them out of Isaiah chapter 7. And before I read it, you need to know this. Isaiah wrote down these words 700 years before... Jesus was born. Now think about that. That's more than twice as long as America has been a nation. Think about American history. Double that. Over 700 years before. Now, the verse I'm about to read, you're going to go, oh, I know that verse. Because you read it in Christmas cards. It's going to be all over stores. People on television that don't have any idea what they're saying are singing the words of this right now. But 700 years. 
before Jesus was born. Look at the promise God gave in Isaiah chapter 7. God said, therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child. Now, that in and of itself was a radical statement. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name. Say it out loud. Do you know what Emmanuel means? The word Emmanuel. Somebody say it. What does it mean? God with us. Here's what the promise was. God made this promise 700 years before Jesus came. There's going to be a virgin who's going to be found with a child. She's going to give birth to that baby, and that baby is going to be God among us. Then look what he said over in Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God had prepared the world spiritually, but not just spiritually. God had prepared the world socially, relationally, for the entrance of his son into the world. See, how did he do that? Did you know that when Jesus was born... God had supernaturally ordained it in such a way that for the first time in human history, there was a global connectedness. Now, we live in a day today of extreme global connectedness with social media and all those platforms. You can be the world today we live in is flat. You can be connected to people all. But but in the first century, the world did not appear that way. But under the Roman Empire that was ruling in the first century, for the first time in human history, there was a, a global connectedness. What, what provided that? Well, several things in the Greco-Roman Empire. Number one, there was a common language. For the first time in history, there had become to be a common language that was used in most of the known world. Secondly, the Romans developed a system of roads that allowed for transportation to take place to and from like never before in the history of of the world. And finally, there was what was called, historians call it the Pax Romana. It literally in Latin means the peace of Rome. And it described a decades lasting peace in the world that had not existed since the world began. There was a global connectedness at this point in human history, unlike anything the world had ever seen, that was God preparing the world for the entrance of his son. Secondly, there was a growing societal hunger for truth. One, one historian and scholar, John R.W. Stott, listen to what he said. At the same time, what time? The time when the Greco-Roman world had given us this global connectedness, the old mythological gods of Greece and Rome were losing their hold on the common people so that the hearts and minds of men everywhere were hungry for a religion that was real and satisfying. At that very moment in human history, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He arrived upon the scene of human history at a time fixed by our Father. But not only did He come at the perfect time, number two, He came in the perfect way. Paul in Galatians verse, chapter 4, verse 4, uses three phrases to describe the coming of Jesus into the world that are so immensely important. All three of these phrases were necessary for Jesus to come in the perfect way. Let me show them to you. Here's the first one in Galatians chapter 4, that God sent forth His 
Son. Say that out loud. God sent forth His Son. It means that He came as 100% God. I don't want to take you too down into the weeds of this, but, but I want you to understand this phrase, sent forth. It comes from a Greek word. The Bible, the New Testament, was originally written in the Greek language. It was that language that was the common language of the spoken world. The Greek language has a word that is translated into English, sent. It's the Greek word, apostello. I can tell that moved you deeply and spiritually this morning. Now, we get an English word from it. It's the word apostle. Sounds like apostello. It's the word apostle. An apostle is one who is sent out on a mission. That's why the apostles, Jesus called those original apostles, and he sent them out. The title really was describing what they were. They were sent out on a mission. This word sent comes from the root word apostello, but Paul adds a prefix onto the word. It's the word ek or ex. So this word in the Greek language is ex apostello. The prefix ex or ek means out of. So what this is literally saying is God sent forth his son on a mission out of. Now that raises a very serious question. Where did he send Jesus from? You see, a lot of people look at the birth of Jesus as though the birth of Jesus is the beginning of Jesus. That Jesus was born and Jesus was a man and some would even say that he's a man who became God. But Paul writes about him and says when Jesus was born was not the beginning of Jesus. The father sent him out of, out of what? Out of eternity. Here's what that means. Jesus is not a man who became God. Jesus is God who became a man. Jesus is 100% God. He always has been God and he always will be God. Let me show you how, how important this is and how true this is in Scripture. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. I love John's gospel. John's one of my favorite gospels in the New Testament. John opens his gospel different than every other gospel. All the other gospels begin by telling us about the birth of Jesus, but John opens his gospel very differently. John opens his gospel with three words. Say them out loud. In. Wait a minute. Stop right there. Does that sound vaguely familiar? What other book of the Bible opens with those three words? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? Genesis 1, 1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens. Here's what Genesis 1, 1 does. Genesis 1, 1 tells us how the beginning began. It's the book of Genesis. It's the book of beginnings. Genesis 1, 1 tells us how the beginning began. John 1.1 tells us who was when the beginning began. You see the difference? Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created it. In the beginning, here's how it all started. God spoke everything we can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell into existence. John says, in the beginning was the who? 
the word. The word, we're going to learn as you read in John 1, the word was a term Paul, where John was using to describe to the Greeks the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word. Here's what John says. When the beginning began, Jesus already was. When God created, Jesus was already God. In eternity past, Jesus is God. He always has been, and He always will be God. It's why when He introduced Himself to Moses, and Moses said, What name shall I tell them sent me? He said, You tell them I am. I am. It's a term that speaks to his eternal existence. You go back as far in history as you want to go. Guess what you find out? He am. That may not be the best English, but it's really good theology. You go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And guess what? He am. Here's what that means. Before the first second ever ticked off of time's clock, before the first ray of sunlight ever broke across the horizon, before the first bird ever sung from a treetop, when there was no earth, no galaxy, no sun, no ocean, no human race, when there was nothing, there was Jesus. Jesus is God. John MacArthur said it this way, Jesus Christ was already in existence when the heavens and earth were created. Thus, he is not a created being, but existed from all eternity. The word did not begin to be, but at that point at which all else began to be, he already was. In the beginning, place it where you may. The word already existed. In other words, the word is before time eternal. Let me tell you why this is important. There are a lot of people who give Jesus a place of prominence, especially during Christmas. A lot of other religions even. We have a religion here in our own city called Mormonism that would say Jesus is a man who became God. And you are a person can become God just like Jesus became God, a man who became God. There are other religions like Islam who give Jesus a place of prominence. Islam would say of Jesus that Jesus is one of the five major prophets of God. I was watching yesterday, my wife and I kind of had an all-day date. We just hung out together all day today at the house, did nothing, just hung out. We finished up our evening last evening, so let's, let's watch a movie together. So we turned on the television. The movie that was on that we decided to watch was a movie called Gandhi. Gandhi, the, the one where Ben Kings, Kingsley plays Gandhi, a masterful, if you're a student of acting and watch much film, he's a masterful job of capturing the character of Gandhi in this movie. Gandhi followed the teachings of Jesus. Gandhi believed the Sermon on the Mount was one of the greatest messages ever delivered. Gandhi is somebody who believed Jesus was a spiritual leader and teacher. He gave him a place of prominence. Here's the problem. Everybody wants to give him a place of prominence, but the Bible gives him the place of preeminence. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a man who became God. He's God who became man. That is a significant truth 
about Jesus. He's the infinite who became finite. He's eternity who entered time. He's the invisible that became visible. He's the creator that entered his creation. That's who he is. Second phrase. Born of a woman. God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. This tells us he came as 100% man. You say, wait a minute. You just said he's 100% God. Now you're saying he's 100% man. Yes. You say, that doesn't make sense. Yes. That's why he's God and we're not. The first phrase, God sent forth his son, is filled with mystery and wonder. This phrase... That's just ordinary. Matter of fact, everybody in this room is that phrase, right? Everybody in this room, born of a woman. If you got here some other way than being born of a woman, we'd like to see you after the service. Amen? Because this is just ordinary. God, out of eternity, sent forth His Son. And how did He come into the world? As a prince on a horse to be celebrated? No. Just like you and me, born of a woman, God became a man. Let's go back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then look what he says down in verse 14. And the Word became, say it out loud. We cannot wrap our minds around what that said. Here's what that said. God who existed before the beginning began, God who spoke everything into existence, God who always has been and always will be, at a point in time, God became a man. And the phrase here is He dwelt among us. That that word dwelt in the Greek language, it literally means to pitch your tent, set up shop, God just became one of us. On the Lord's day, he went to church. On the next day, he went to work. He slept. He ate. He laughed. He cried. He had family. He had friends. Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. He never stopped being God. He laid aside, Paul tells us in another letter, he laid aside the privileges of being God, fully took on humanity, and he lived as a human being. But there's a third phrase. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Here's the third phrase. Born under the law. That phrase teaches us that he came and he is 100% righteous. Jesus did in relationship to the law what you and I could not do on our own. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Every thou shalt, he shalt. Every thou shalt not, he shalt not it. He perfectly fulfilled 
the law of God. He did what we could not do. Now, he was tempted. The Bible says of him, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Stott summed it up this way. Listen to what he said. Throughout his life, he submitted to all the requirements of the law. He succeeded where all others before him and since have failed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. Now, why does this matter? Here's why it matters. In order for Jesus to come in God's perfect way, he needed to be 100% God. He needed to be 100% man, and he needed to be 100% righteous. You see, we needed him to be God because we needed the sacrifice to be eternal. No limited, finite human being could make a sacrifice that would, that would uh, atone for an eternal sin against God. We needed him to be God, but secondly, we needed him to be man. Only a human being could atone for the sins of humanity as the sacrifice, but also we needed him to be righteous. In order for his sacrifice to be acceptable to a holy God, we needed him to be righteous. Jesus is God's perfect gift because he's 100% God. He's 100% man and he's 100% righteous. He came as God's perfect gift. But then finally, he came to demonstrate God's perfect love. God's perfect love. I've been unpacking so far for you verse number four. Verse five opens with this phrase. So that. And let me just remind you, anytime you see those two little words, so that, in the Bible, you ought to underline them or circle them because the phrase so that is a Greek phrase, hena, that means here's the reason why. What did he just say? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Paul says, here's why. So that he might redeem those who were under the law. Now, redeem, redemption, it's not a word that we're super familiar with in our culture today. But in Roman times, almost a third of the Roman Empire was made up of men and women who were in bondage. They were enslaved. It was a different kind of slavery than what we experience in our country's history. But nonetheless, it was slavery. It was bondage. One of the uniquenesses about Roman slavery was a friend or a relative who was free could pay a certain price and they would redeem their friend or family member out of the bondage. And when they paid that price of redemption, that person was then set free. Here's why Paul borrows that language. You see, because of sin, all of us were enslaved. We were in bondage. Because we sinned against God, we were held captive by sin. Sin dominated us. Sin was going to ultimately destroy us. We were doomed because of sin. We were in bondage. And here's what we learned from the law. There was nothing we could do to earn our freedom. We couldn't be set free from sin's power. We couldn't be set free from sin's penalty. And we could not be ultimately set free from sin's presence in our own strength. We needed someone who could pay a price to redeem us. And that is exactly what 
Jesus did. As 100% God and 100% man and 100% righteous, he offered his body on a cross. And on the cross, Jesus took all of your sin and all of my sin. And on the cross, he died for us. And then he rose again as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sins. And now when we put our faith and trust in him, we are set free. We're set free. We begin to experience freedom in our lives from sin's power. We're ultimately set free from the penalty of sin, which is separation from God for all eternity. And in heaven, one day, we'll experience freedom from the very presence of sin. But all of that redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. But then Paul closes with one final thing. He said, so then, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The word adoption is a beautiful word. Here's what the word adoption means. It means to become a part of a family to which we did not originally belong. Because of our sin, we could not have a relationship with God. Our sin separated us from God so much so that you and I were not children of God. We did not belong to Him. We belonged to the enemy. We were enslaved to sin. But Jesus died. He purchased our redemption. He set us free. But not only did He set us free, the Bible says He adopted us into the family so that now the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all, is not just the King of kings and Lord of lords and creator of all. He's our Father. And we are children in His family. We didn't read it, but in verse 6, Paul says we're so much a part of His family that we can now call out to Him and say, Abba, Father. It's a word of intimacy. The closest thing in the English language is Daddy. He becomes our Father. But listen, God's gift, like all gifts, have to be received. What I've just said is very true, but it's only true for those of us who receive God's gift of salvation. Let me show it to you again out of John chapter 1, verse 12. John writes and he says, but as many as received him, to them, who? The ones that received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. How do I receive him? By faith. You say, that sounds too simple. Listen, it's easy for us because he already did all the work. He came as 100% God and 100% man, and He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And then He died for our sin and rose again from the dead so that you and I could experience forgiveness and freedom and salvation and be brought into His family. So the question I have for you this morning, have you ever received God's gift of salvation? Have you ever turned from your sin, put your faith in Jesus, and received God's gracious gift, the greatest gift ever given? If not, in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of worship. 
And we're going to have some pastors here along the front, right here at the steps, right here in the middle. And if you're here today and you don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you've never experienced God's forgiveness, you've never experienced salvation, you don't know what it means to say God is my Father and I'm a part of the family of God, when we stand to sing in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come to one of our pastors and simply say to them, I need Jesus. And they'll show you from the Bible today how you can begin a personal relationship with God. You can know today that you are in the family of God and that you'll spend eternity in heaven with Him. All you got to do in just a moment is come. But when they, those come to receive Christ today, we're going to also have some other things going on. I told you at the beginning of the service that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And those, that because it's a relationship, He gave us two practice to celebrate, practices that celebrate our relationship with Him and fellowship with others. And so in just a moment, when we stand to sing, we're going to also be together celebrating what's called communion or the Lord's Supper. All around the room, there's some stations up here at the front. There's some stations back in the back, back in the corners. They're all the same. We're going to have deacons and volunteer leaders and pastors that will be there serving you. We have the two elements, the bread and the cup. The bread is a symbol. Listen, there's nothing spiritual or mystical or magical about this practice. It doesn't make us any more right with God, but it lets us celebrate what He's already done. The bread is a symbol of that body that Jesus took on. The humanity, the sinless body that Jesus took on and offered as a sacrifice for our sins. When we take the bread, we're to worship Jesus that God became a man. But then the cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed so that you and I could be forgiven. The scripture says, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Had Jesus not shed his blood for us, you and I could not be made right with him. So you'll have an opportunity to go to one of the tables and get the bread and the cup, and you can take it right there, you can take it back to your seat. But I want you, when you get those elements, to take a moment and just worship God, to thank him and praise him, and then take those elements, the the bread and the cup, Partake of them in in an act of worship to our God. The scripture also tells us that every time we take the Lord's Supper, we should examine our hearts. You should ask some questions as you move to one of the tables, like, do I even know God? Listen, if you don't know God today, you don't need a symbol. You need a Savior. You don't need a picture. You need a person. But if you know him and you're moving to one of these tables, the second question to ask, is there anything between me and the Lord that's not right? Maybe you want to just stop in one of the altars for a few moments before you move to one of the tables and just say, God, I need to get some stuff right with you in my own heart. Maybe you want to do that as you're walking. Maybe do that in your seat before you go to a table. And finally, ask the question, is there anything between me and another brother or sister in Christ that's not right? Anybody that you need to make something right with before you go to one of these tables. Paul gives some strong language in another letter about being sure we examine our heart before we take of this table. But then after we do the Lord's Supper together, we're going to continue to sing. And outside, we've got people that are going to be baptized. That are going to follow Christ in baptism. So we're going to come back together and we're going to worship. We're going to sing. And let me just challenge you. We're going to stand. There's going to be a lot of movement that's about to take place. But here's what this is not. This is not an opportunity for you to slip out early. All right? That's not what this is. Beat the parking lot. Beat somebody. Get my car. Get out of here. That's not what this is. This is an opportunity to worship God together. So we call it at Hope a little bit of worship chaos. All right? We're about to do four things at once. 
Here's what's going to happen. We're going to stand. Our team's going to begin to lead us in just a moment. And the first thing we're going to do is begin to examine our hearts. We're going to ask them those questions. Do I know God? Am I right with God? Am I right with my brothers and sisters in Christ? We're going to examine our hearts. Then there's going to be a time of intercession. We're going to have pastors here along the front. The altars are going to be open. If you want to pray with a pastor about something in your job, your health, your family, your relationship, you can come. They'll be talking to others that are coming to know Christ, and then you can come and just, they'd be honored to pray. You can get in one of these altars and just be alone with God. Maybe you want to pray about something in your job or your health or your family or a lost person that you know that you want them to see come to know Christ. Third thing that's going to happen is worship. We're going to each go to the table. We're going to worship God by taking the, the, the Lord's Supper. And the last thing that's going to happen is we're going to praise the Lord. We're going to praise Him in song as we sing together. We're going to praise Him as we celebrate life change, seeing people baptized. And all that's going to be happening at once. And when you've been to the table, been to the altar, you make your way back to your seat and you join in this crescendo of praise. Now, our services are always packed, so it's, it's, it's a challenge. As we move around to these tables, but listen, the, the tables in the back and the front, they're all the same. You go to the one that's closest to you. It's kind of like the exit on the airplane. You find the one closest to you, and you go there, and then make your way back to your seat. I'm going to let our hosts go ahead and move to their table as they'll begin to serve. Let's all stand together. Father, I pray right now, God, that you would move, Lord, that you would speak, God, that we would worship. Lord, I pray for those that need to be saved today, that they would come. Lord, they would come to one of these pastors here at the front and just tell them, Lord, I need Jesus today. God, I pray they'd find salvation. Lord, have your way in this time as we worship you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.